Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Vigils and protests took place this weekend following last week's three deadly shootings in the area that left eight people dead and which six were women of Asian descent. Georgia Democratic Representative B. Wynn spoke at a rally on the grounds of the state capitol. We have lived in the shadows, invisible, overlooked, stereotyped, and relegated as second-class citizens. Now, coming up in just a moment, WABE legal analyst Paige Pate joins me and weighs in on whether or not the shooter could face hate crime charges. But first, on to this. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, for now, has at least one fellow Republican challenger. It's Georgia Congressman Jody Heiss who's entering the primary with an endorsement from former President Donald Trump. Now, both Trump and Representative Heiss criticized Secretary Raffensperger's handling of the 2020 election results and spread false claims of voter fraud. Now, to other political news, a candidate in another local race says Atlanta's rise in crime is a top priority. Current city council president and also mayoral candidate Felicia Moore released a new video today stating public safety will be a top priority. Homicides were up 58 percent last year. 58%. That's unacceptable. Meanwhile, we're down over 400 officers. Atlanta, we have a problem. Let's be clear. We need to take action now. Atlanta can't wait. As for action, President Moore is calling for these actions to address crime, including the selection of a permanent police chief, the hiring of more officers, and addressing, quote, disciplinary issues within the force. Of course, Felicia Moore is challenging current Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms in the upcoming November race. Now we turn to our daily coronavirus update. Fulton health officials say thousands of appointments, and they emphasize thousands of appointments, slots are currently available at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. That's right, for the COVID-19 vaccine. A Facebook post from the county's emergency management agency stated that the state's largest vaccination site has free parking and, quote, tons of staff with smiling faces. Hmm. So eligible Georgians can sign up online through Fulton County's website. Again, according to them, they have thousands, thousands of appointment slots for the COVID-19 vaccine at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Now, eligible Georgians can sign up again through the county's website. And at this time, there are more than 3.2 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines that have already been administered, according to the State Department of Public Health. Still, overall, that's just about 11 percent of all Georgians who are fully vaccinated. The state continues to rank the bottom for vaccines administered nationwide. And yesterday, 899 new cases were reported, bringing Georgia's total total number of confirmed cases since last year to 843,141 confirmed coronavirus cases and 16,145 Georgians have died due to the virus. And we do know that also since last year, 57,932 Georgians have been hospitalized. And finally, let's talk a little sports. After a key player tested for positive for COVID-19, the Georgia Tech men's basketball team lost to Loyola Chicago on Friday, and I think some help from a very, very popular nun might have had something to do with it. Still, head coach Josh Pastner addressed the challenge in a post-game press conference. Yes, it was tough not playing with Moses, right? I mean, not easy to lose your ACC Player of the Year, and I feel so bad for that young man. Think about it. He's worked so hard, a chance of a lifetime to play in the NCAA tournament, 
and um, unfortunately, he's not able to play. I feel I feel sick for him. But and that's obviously uh, a big loss when you're when you're not having the ACC Player of the Year uh, that you've depended on and counted on. Well, the Yellow Jackets lost 60-71. to But, hey, Georgia Tech's women's team is still in a tournament. They defeated Stephen F. Austin in overtime, 54-52. So now the 5C team will play West Virginia for a trip to the Sweet 16. Also underway right now, the University of Georgia women's basketball team is playing in their first round against Drexel. That game is right now being televised. So hopefully more victories for both programs are in store. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Many of this past Sunday services reflected on the three spa shootings that took place last Tuesday. Six women of Asian descent were among the eight dead. WABE's Emil Moffitt has this report. In a spacious sanctuary in the Atlanta suburbs, members of Crabapple First Baptist Church sat socially distanced, wearing masks and singing. The largely white congregation prayed for the families of both victims and the suspect in last week's shooting. As they gathered, one of their own members was sitting in jail, facing eight counts of murder in connection with the shootings. Associate Pastor Luke Folsom acknowledged it was hard to fathom the suspect came from their midst. We don't have answers. We don't know why it's happened, but we feel alone and broken. But God, we know that you are there. The accused gunman, who is 21 years old, told police that he was addicted to sex and carried out the shootings in his words to eliminate temptation. In a statement last week, the church rejected that justification. It said the suspect's actions are, quote, antithetical to everything we believe and teach as a church, and that he alone is responsible for his evil actions and desires. After the sermon, members voted to kick the suspect out of the church, saying they can, quote, no longer affirm that he is truly a regenerate believer in Jesus Christ. About 30 miles away, several Asian American church congregations gathered for a vigil outside of Gold Spa in Atlanta. It's one of the three businesses the gunmen targeted. In front of the building, flower bouquets and handwritten tributes honor the victims. Byung Chul Han is a senior pastor at Korean Central Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. He says a person's inability to control his sexual desires does not justify harming another person, let alone taking their life. As a human being, we all have been tempted, tempted every day, but we should not kill people to eliminate temptation. He says the focus should be on the violence and anti-Asian rhetoric that have been on the rise across the country since the start of the pandemic. I want this incident to be an awakening moment, not only for Asian Americans, but also for all Americans, to end this kind of discrimination. Pastor Chol Han's gathering was one of many vigils and protests across the country over the weekend for the victims of last week's shootings. Hundreds of people flocked to a rally at the Georgia State Capitol in downtown Atlanta on Saturday. Kathy Regan grew emotional as she said anti-Asian sentiment is growing. So what happened in the past week is really, I think, a tipping point where a white guy killed eight people. So I think we really need to stand up together and then show our voice. The speakers at the rally included newly elected U.S. Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Many called for the suspect to be charged under Georgia's new hate crime law, in addition to murder. Prosecutors say they haven't ruled it out. Emil Moffat, WABE News. And as you just heard Emil say, it has been ruled out. So the question remains, will a hate crime charge happen? And if so, how will it be determined? Well, joining me now is defense attorney and WABE's legal analyst, Paige Pate. Paige, as always, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Rose. Paige, so much to unpack here. Let's begin with the charges for the suspect, Robert Aaron Long. Eight counts of murder, one count of aggravated assault. Other than a possible hate crime charge, which we'll get into in a moment, right now, might there be any additional charges that come as well? No, I I think the murder charge, of course, you can have a, a felony murder charge because the murder occurred during the commission of the aggravated assault. 
Uh, but I think those will be the main charges, if not the only charges, other than the hate crimes enhancement. Now, it is possible, given both the circumstances of the case and the number of people involved, that this could be a death penalty prosecution. That'll be up to the district attorneys of each of the jurisdictions. And, you know, it's been a long time since the, a death penalty has been handed down here in Georgia. Now, Paige, initially authorities were reluctant to call the ki- killings racially motivated. They haven't ruled that out. I want to go back to last week when Cherokee County Sheriff Frank Reynolds from last Wednesday's press conference responding to questions about motivation. Um, as the chief indicated, uh, it's still early, but uh, the indicators right now are uh, uh, it, it may not be. Uh, it may be targets of opportunity. Uh, again, we are we believe that he frequented these places in the past and, um, and uh, may have been lashing out. Uh, and part of that is, is in your media packet as well. But the working theory is a sexual addiction issue rather than a, a, a racial profile. Uh, uh, it, during our interviews, uh, we asked that specific question and uh, and that did not appear to be uh, the motive. So, Paige, for our listeners, when you heard the sheriff talk about the indicators, what typically has to be determined then to constitute a hate crime charge? Well, it's not really spelled out in the statute. It, it ultimately is going to be up to a jury to determine if that was a motivating factor. But it does appear that at least during that press conference, law enforcement was more focused on race than gender. And gender is also a protected class under the hate crime statute. So if his actions were motivated um, for some sort of sexual addiction or attraction to a specific gender, that could certainly be an argument for the application of the hate crime statute beyond the fact that he also appeared to be targeting a specific uh, ethnic minority Mm -hmm. group. And if there isn't a state hate crime charge, there's still a chance for federal, correct? That's right. That's right. Um, although at the end of the day, you're normally not going to see a federal hate crimes prosecution if there is a serious state crimes prosecution like a murder case. So mm-hmm. given the facts of this case and the potential sentence he's looking at just for the murder, I would be surprised if there's a federal case. Well, Paige, and because these killings took place in two separate counties, how does all this get worked out in terms of And we should note that as of right now, there has not been a plea agreement. So let's say this does then go to trial. How did they work out? Because, you know, the killings took place in two different counties. Well, there are multiple crimes. Each Mm -hmm. jurisdiction would have the ability to try him and convict him for murder uh, for the crimes that occurred in that particular county. So and I've seen this happen in other cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, you commit crimes in two or more counties, you're going to be tried and convicted in two or more counties, and those punishments can stack on top of one another. So he could get life in prison in one county and life in prison on the other county and stack them together, and that would significantly impact any chance of parole. Paige, a question that a lot of folks have been floating around as it relates to, you know, when we talked about a hate crime and how do you determine that someone sets out to eliminate, quote, a threat of temptation, but it's taken out against society at large in a sense. Why can't that be considered a hate crime? Because of the the threat and there's multiple people that have been killed here. Well, in order to have this uh, hate crimes law apply, you have to be able to identify a specific targeted group. And so I think if we're looking as broadly as society in general, that's going to encompass more crimes than this law was was designed to cover. Mm-hmm. And, and it's important because remember, this is not Georgia's first hate crimes law. We previously had a law that was struck down as unconstitutional mm-hmm. for that very reason. It was too broad. And so the legislature now narrowed it to specific categories And I think that's how it's going to have to be applied to remain constitutional. The voice you hear is legal defense attorney and WABE legal uh, analyst Paige Page. Paige, Georgia's statute also includes authorities offering what's called a sort of a biased crime report when investigating crimes that might be or appear to be hate crimes. What is included in this report? Well, it's a fairly detailed report that is supposed to be prepared every time you investigate a case like this. And you don't have to make any arrest. It's just the investigation of the case that triggers this required uh, report. You have to put in the details of who's involved, their names, their backgrounds, addresses, what happened in the case, where and when did the incident occur, 
What type of evidence were you able to collect to suggest that it may be motivated by hate? Uh, was there any specific physical evidence like, uh, you know, painted graffiti or mm -hmm. things left at the scene that would suggest that it was um, motivated by hate? Uh, any sort of relationship between the alleged suspect involved and the victims? And then ultimately, how did you respond? Were arrests made? Were prosecutions begun? And the report goes to whom? I mean, the prosecution obviously has a chance to read this as well as the defense. If there's going to be yes, defense if the in this case, case. Yeah. that's right. If the case is prosecuted, both sides will see it. But perhaps just as importantly, it's sent into the Georgia Crime Information Center. The GBI will begin um, compiling all of these details, maintaining that type of database that people have wanted for a long time. Paige, if the suspect here has acknowledged being the shooter, which is what we heard from officials, does that count as an official confession? How does this work? Uh, yes. I mean, a confession is basically an admission to enough elements of the offense so that you can be prosecuted for it. And again, you know, I haven't heard the confession. I don't mm -hmm. know if it was taped or somebody just wrote it down. But if he said, I was the guy who was there, I pulled the trigger, I shot them, I intended to kill them. That is enough. And of course, you would anticipate, given the, the circumstances of this investigation, that he was properly Mirandized and, you know, they, they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. Uh, you, you would not want to run the risk of losing that confession if this case goes to trial. But there is a chance that it still could go to trial if the, if the suspect says, why well, I, I want to, to have a, a jury trial instead. Can he make that? that well, that's yes, that's possible. And it, it's also possible that this case could end up like the Brian Nichols case, who mm -hmm. many people remember was the uh, shooter in the Fulton County Courthouse many years ago. That case went to trial simply because the DA wanted to pursue the death penalty. It could have been resolved by a guilty plea to murder with life in prison. So in this case, given the circumstances of this offense, the attention that is attracted, you may have these elected DAs say, I'm not going to let him plead. I'm going to try him on, on death penalty charges. Paige, there are reports from what we consider credible news outlets that the suspect here was receiving or did receive some sort of counseling or therapy for his alleged sex addiction here. Hope Quest is listed as an evangelical based treatment facility in Ackworth, Georgia, just miles actually down the road from Young's Asian Spa, where one of the killings took place. Might this facility, Hope Quest, become part of the investigation, if it hasn't already, in terms of what the suspect might have revealed that would have indicated some type of violent behavior? And could they be held liable if they knew? It, Go ahead, I'll just Well, finish. yeah, those are two obviously different questions. Uh, yes, it, it could become relevant. Uh, most of the discussions, though, that an individual will have with a licensed counselor or therapist, certainly a psychologist, those are privileged communications, but the person may have had uh, discussions with other people who were there at the facility. Uh, there may have been documents submitted as part of some application. Uh, and then, absolutely, uh, if the facility or anyone employed by that facility became aware of specific threats, um, I'm going to go harm somebody, I I'm going to go you know, to this facility and, and get these folks so I'm no longer tempted, yes, that could rise to the level of something that must be reported to law enforcement. And if it's not, there would be some liability concerns on behalf of the facility. And Paige, as we wrap up, what has stood out for you so far with this case? With all these events, actually. Well, to me, Rose, sure. I'm most concerned about what sort of an impact the hate crimes law is actually going to have in serious cases like this. Everyone uh, you know, that I've talked to who was a supporter of this legislation was very glad that it was finally passed in Georgia. But the potential punishment is so minor for a serious case that it's not really going to change the sentence for this individual or anyone else who commits a serious felony while committing a hate crime. It may make a difference if it's a battery or a trespass or some very minor misdemeanor where the person's looking at actually going to jail instead of straight probation. But the penalty for a felony committed as a hate crime is only two years in prison. And obviously that, that's a lower sentence than almost anyone would receive in a serious felony case without the hate crimes charge. So I hope it's gonna send enough of a deterrent effect but I'm, I'm concerned that it won't. 
Defense attorney and WABE's legal analyst, Paige Pate. As always, Paige, good information. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Russ. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. According to a recent report published by the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, police departments and sheriff offices cited an increase in domestic violence calls, of course, during this ongoing health crisis. And according to the report, Jefferson County, Alabama, experienced a 27 percent increase out in Portland, Oregon, 22 percent increase, San Antonio, 18% and New York City, a 10% increase. And even last year in April, in one of many press conferences after his shelter-in-place orders took effect, Governor Brian Kemp mentioned a cause for concern. We have been told by one area, Atlanta Hospital, that they are seeing a 15% increase in domestic violence cases at their facilities. And apparently it's still increasing now a year later, Local nonprofits and advocates are still on the front lines working to help those who are victims of domestic violence. That includes International Women's House Incorporated. It's a DeKalb County-based shelter serving victims of family violence, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. Anna Blau is the executive director, and she joins me now to talk about the nonprofit's mission and what it's been doing doing during this COVID-19 pandemic. Anna, welcome. Thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. Um, We're going through tremendous challenges during this past year, Mm -hmm. and it's still ongoing. Our mission is to provide safe haven for victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking. And this includes everything we can do to help victims feel safe and heal Mm -hmm. the wounds of their abuse. What we do provide is shelter and food and clothing. Mm -hmm. Legal advocacy will take you to the courthouse and be your advocate for restraining orders, uh, for child custody hearings, um, anything we can do to make you feel safe. Because when you leave, that's probably the most unsafe time Mm -hmm. that a victim has. So we're doing everything we can to ensure their safety first. Yeah. Anna, let's go back then a little bit to last year. You all obviously had to shift like a lot of all of us had to because of the pandemic. How challenging was that in, in for you all to continue to offer the services to so many? How did you all shift in what you were able to do and how you were able to do it? Well, we never closed down. Mm-hmm. We did have about 50% of our staff at home those months due to COVID concerns, whether they had a young child to take care of, or elderly parents. So we were at 50% capacity as far as staff. However, we continued. Um, We saw as many clients as we had seen before. We were getting an increase of 42% of calls to the shelter for help. Um, One of the things that we discovered very quickly was that when you're in a pandemic situation and you're at home Mm -hmm. and your abuser isn't working either and he's home or she, then you are really stuck and you have no way out. You don't have the opportunities to call for help. So sometimes you ask a family member to call, ask a a trusted friend to call on your behalf. Um, It was very challenging. We had a lot more people that needed shelter than we had beds. We never had a loss for residents. Mm -hmm. Um, We were putting people in hotels just to keep them safe. We were working double shifts. Uh, some of us were working triple shifts because, again, we had half the staff and twice the load of work. So it was extremely challenging. And um, also we're talking about folks who had children with them as well. Yes. 
for the children, there were two sets of trauma involved here. One was leaving the home because in spite of the abuse that might be in the home, you're still leaving a parent or a loved one behind. Mm -hmm. You're leaving your friends behind. Then couple it with the fact that you're not in school. This was very, very serious for our children. And, and we spent a lot of time working with them because they are traumatized, both by living in a communal setting. Um, even though we're set up where every family has its own room, its own private bathroom, it's still communal living. You're still living in a place that isn't home to you. Mm -hmm. You don't have your toys with you. You don't have your friends around. Um, you're not able to call out because we don't want anybody tracking where you are. So with the children, we had to take extra special time. Our children's advocate worked very closely with them uh, to provide some counseling to make them feel they have a safe space in which they can share how they feel. And a lot of the children came with anger mm -hmm. or they came um, very quiet, very subdued. So both of those uh, spectrums of, of behavior were something we had to deal with and deal very quickly. If you just join us, I'm joined by Anna Blau. She's the executive director for International Women's House Incorporated. And we're talking about the rise and spike and increase, not only just calls to hotlines, but to so many programs and authorities uh, during this pandemic. Uh, and I want to go back and walk our listeners through how this typically works. You receive a call. You all able to get someone uh, into, as you call it, a, a room or a bed. And then what's the next step? Is there some sort of assessment as to what that particular person needs or that household needs? And then also, what is the average length of time that folks are with you all? Well, I'll answer the second question first. Yeah. You know, normally a lot of shelters are 30-day shelters. We don't have that. We don't have a time limit in that respect. It, very, it really varies on the needs of the individual. We've had people here three months. We've had people here six months. It just depends because the types of women we see, many of them are undocumented. So that becomes a whole other host of issues, um, getting immigration status has changed where we can, uh, working with attorneys, pro bono attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, so during the intake, we're going to find out a lot about the abuse. We're going to find out... Uh, if the abuse is recent, if the abuse is ongoing, are there weapons in the home? Are the children in need of medical attention? A number of these victims, both the children and the women, have never had medical care. We have women coming in who are pregnant who've never had prenatal care because the abuser won't allow it. So we're learning a lot how long they've been together. Are they married? Are they partners? Um, is this a same-sex relationship? Mm -hmm. Because we do have people in our shelter. We, we serve men. We currently have men in our shelter. So, um, you know, we, we've got a whole host of questions that we ask, but it's very participatory. We don't judge anyone that comes in here. A, a number of times the victim will say, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I should give him another chance. And we don't judge. If you feel that you want to give this person another chance, just to have a safety plan in mind. Because what happens when you do return, and we give them their options, when you return, that may be very dangerous. Do you all follow up with them? Are you Absolutely. Yeah. A minimum of a year. We have victims, former victims who are survivors, who are in touch with us 10 years after, just to say, hello, we're doing fine. Mm -hmm. We have young children. I've been here 24 years. So young children that came then are now doctors graduates from college who have not only survived but thrived. And we're so excited when we hear from these people. We really are. Anna, you all, like so many organizations uh, that receive federal or state funding, did receive a, a cut, obviously due to all the circumstances regarding the pandemic. How have you all, are you in shape to recover at all? Well, we're doing the best we can, you know, um, Funding is always an issue. We're not the only shelter suffering from that. But somehow we make it work. We have to. We don't have a choice. You know, we've been cut significantly, um, as have other shelters. But the reality is we're going to keep on doing what we need to do. And in spite of the cuts, we're hopeful that that'll change down the road. Um, you know, a new year, the, the 
Congress is making some changes in mm-hmm. Washington, but we can't wait for that. I mean, we're just doing what we need to do. And and how many you you refer to them as beds? How many beds do you all have, or what is the capacity level for you all to help people? Well, we're a twenty-one bed shelter, um, and obviously there's a greater need than that. But we also uh, this past year had over fifteen hundred outreach clients who were in shelters that either had to stay in a shelter or go to a hotel. We ourselves paid for hotels for over a thousand victims this past year. And and, and we managed. We managed. And you all we're are still frugal. I'm sorry, we're go ahead. very frugal, yeah. But you all are still seeing an increase in calls for We are seeing about a forty two percent increase in requests for help. And every one of those are helped in one way or another. Um, if it's not a referral to another resource, if they don't need shelter and they need counseling or outreach or food or clothing or help with rent, we do that on site. That's something we are pre- uh, prepared to do and do. Um, a number of people uh, are facing financial struggles mm-hmm. just to put food on the table and not even worrying about the rent. We've had to go to court to make sure people are not evicted because of COVID related. And there are laws in place. So sometimes a landlord is not as receptive to the laws and we have to you know, ensure that they understand the laws. So whatever it takes to keep someone off the streets, that's what we're doing. And also, Anna, it sounds like you all rely on, and I've heard this so many times with so many agencies like yours and nonprofits, it takes a lot of public and private partnerships. It takes a lot of partnerships with local authorities that in itself, in trying to to combat this, um, how important is it to keep those public-private partnerships ongoing? It's extremely important, and we have them. We work very closely with the Cap County Police Department as well as other county law enforcement. Uh, we're very, very close with our district attorney and our solicitor general. Um, judges know us, mm-hmm. and. Um, we're grateful for that. We also work closely with other nonprofit agencies. You know, if someone needs really mental health counseling that we can't provide, Mm -hmm. then we can refer them. And this is all pro bono. None of our clients ever have to pay a fee. Uh, We provide them with medical care, dental care, vision care. Um, We have people who come here who are disabled Mm -hmm. in the worst possible ways, sometimes due to the abuse, sometimes had the disability and then were abused. And we want to make sure that their mental and physical health are taken care of so that they can um, succeed when they leave here. Anna, personal stories are always sometimes important when we have these conversations. Why you do this work and why you continue to do this work as well, personal for you. Well, I many years ago, I survived abuse. And um, without going into a lot of details, It was traumatizing because I remember thinking, how did this happen to me? I went to college. I graduated. I'm smart. I'm sort of pretty. What happened? You know? Um, And then I realized it wasn't me. It was him. Mm -hmm. But I had support. I had family support. A lot of these victims are totally isolated. They can't reach out to anybody. And so I, I fully understand most of us in this field, by the way, are survivors, mm-hmm. certainly in my office. Half of my staff are survivors. And we look for people who understand you, you can't teach compassion. You have to have it. And one of the best ways is, is to have the experience. So, um, yeah, it's, that's how you get into this field sometimes because you've been a victim and you don't want to be a victim anymore. You want to survive and you want to thrive. And um, we've done that here and and successfully. I'm very, very appreciative of the work our staff does and absolutely inspired by the victims we serve. It takes a lot to leave someone. And on that note, Anna, as we wrap up, for someone who might be listening, who's involved in a situation that they may not feel like they can get out or you know of someone, what do you want to tell them? There is help out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether you call our agency or another agency, um, there is absolute help. And and you don't deserve any abuse. It's just not what you deserve. 
So please call us, call anyone out there to get help. It's there. Anna Blau, the executive director for the International Women's House Incorporated. Thank you so much for taking the time. In addition to con- contact the International Women's House directly, I want to take this time to give out Georgia's 24-hour hotline number for domestic violence. We'll have this on our website as well. The number is 1-800-33-HAVEN. Again, 1-800-33-HAVEN. That's 1-800-334-2836. Anna, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for what you and your organization and what you all are doing to help so many people. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. And as always, send me your emails or tweet to me if there's a subject or an issue or topic that you think we should be covering. Or as y'all are so accustomed to doing, if you just want to send me an email and fuss at me or praise the team, I'll take it. It's rose at WABE.org. Now, early this month, Georgia Supreme Court Chief Justice Harold Melton lifted restrictions on jury trials in the state. This after nearly a year of statewide judicial emergency orders that suspended jury trials. Well, you all trials, you all know why, because of the pandemic. Now, keep in mind, court officials throughout the state still have the discretion to hear cases in person, but that's only if safety measures are in place. As I said, after all, the coronavirus pandemic still exists, which might present a challenge in getting folks to serve on juries. The right to a trial by jury is fundamental to the American system of justice. But since March of 2020, jury trials in Georgia have been on hold. We made that decision to protect Georgia citizens from COVID-19. We have learned much about COVID since March. Working with Georgia medical experts, we have established rigorous safety protocols for courthouses, courtrooms, and jury spaces. We cannot conduct jury trials without jurors, without you. Justice needs jurors. That, of course, is Georgia Chief Justice Harold Melton, who's spearheading the campaign. Make sure you all remember the importance of serving on a jury. And so Chief Justice Melton joins me now. Thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, uh, especially on this important topic. Always a pleasure to be with you. Let's begin if, here if you know, and, and you may not, and I apologize if you don't, because I'm curious, do you know in terms of case number or percentage just how much of a backlog in terms of the jury trials are right here in Georgia? I imagine it's huge. <laughs> well, the easiest way to conceptualize it is to just imagine a year's worth of jury trials not be conducted at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we start up and as courts are starting up, they will have to do a year's worth of work on top of what normally was is coming into the courts. What makes that even more difficult is the idea that when you do things under the new safety protocols, it's it's going to be slower and it's going to take longer to get through those cases. Since you lifted that suspension earlier this month, have you heard from different courts from different counties? Because, you know, what might work for DeKalb may not work in another county or or, or smaller county down in Georgia, you know, where you may not have a, a large courthouse. What have you been hearing? Sure. Everybody's doing it differently, uh, but you're exactly right. They're, they have to customize based on the physical facilities that they have available, the physical facilities they have as alternatives. Uh, so if you only have one courtroom in the building, you might be going to the high school gym. If you have 40 courtrooms, then what a lot of times the, the, the judges are doing is making sure there's only one or a certain handful of jury trials going on so they can use all the rooms to spread people out throughout the building, which also impacts the other non-jury proceedings that are going on at the same time. But everybody's doing something different. I believe that's you, Justice Melton. <laughs> I, yes, and I, it's okay. Turned off. It's okay. I, I expect a man like you would have many emails coming in, or maybe someone's emailing you saying, that's not what you told us. <laughs> Let me ask you this because uh-huh. I, I understand. Let me ask you this because I, I did hear from um, some judges and here's one that said, you know, um, folks are anxious and tragically several judges have died. Um, probate courts across the state had 33 judges positive and 55 staff. This might have been a while ago. 
Are you asking them to also maybe look at an increase in funding for additional virtual technology? What's your take on that? Do you think this is an opportunity now for, you know, there to be some other ways of how we handle? And can you do a jury trial virtually, Justice Melton? Yeah. So, well, you know, I haven't given up on the idea of doing jury trials virtually. Mm -hmm. That is a high mountain to climb. We're used to being able to confront witnesses, which is a constitutional right, especially in a criminal case. And how do you do that in in a virtual setup? How do you know that somebody's not in the room next to them whispering answers? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's just a lot of difficulties in reading body language and facial expressions uh, virtually that you don't get the opportunity to do. Uh, so I haven't given up on that. There's, there's states who are working along those lines, but that's a high mountain to climb. Is this an opportunity to look at uh, resources mm-hmm. to ensure and greater uh, and have greater resources to protect the, the court officials? Absolutely. And we're, we have opportunities to do just that right now. What convinced you in terms of this coronavirus pandemic that it was time to offer at least the option for courts to have in-person jury trials? What was the science you were looking at? I'm looking at the numbers of seven-day average cases uh, in, in the state. Uh, when we opened up jury trials in October, we were about at uh, 1,500 seven-day average. Uh, and then the numbers went up. In December of this past year, the numbers went all the way up to 7,200 seven-day, okay. 7,200 seven-day uh, average cases of COVID, we're back down to about a thousand, mm-hmm. right around a thousand. Um, so the numbers have dropped considerably. And you mentioned the safety concerns for the people in the courthouse, and that's very real. The other concern is when you don't have jury trials, you have people sitting in jail waiting for their jury trials. Mm-hmm. And we have people who are accused of crimes who are operating under assumption of innocent until proven guilty who are sitting in jail for a year. Mm-hmm. And so our constitutional rights have to be real even during a pandemic. And we can't wait for the pandemic to go away completely. We've got to figure out how to do some of this work, even in the midst of a, of a pandemic, because our brothers and sisters in our community are counting on the constitutional rights being real. How, how optimistic are you that this campaign will be effective? Because someone gets that notice in the mail, and I think we've all received it, and they say, well, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, is is that a, I don't call it an excuse, but can you understand someone? Sure, I can understand. Yeah. I, I think combined with a number of factors overall, we have a good chance of bringing people in. Uh, you see schools opening up. If we could do schools, we could do jury trials. And we've got plans in place where we have separators. We've got purification filters. We, we've got separate rooms. We We've got everything thought out, and we're making sure that the people who receive these summons uh, summonses know about the plans that are in place. So all these things taken as a whole should give some comfort. And even the the idea that in this conversation that we're having society-wide about justice, mm-hmm. sitting on a jury should not be viewed as something we try to get out of. And that was our mindset going into the pandemic and for many of us. We get a jury summons and we figure out how to get out of it. And then we have the have these concerns about what juries may or may not be doing all across the country, but yet we don't want to serve. And you can't have it both ways. And so if we really are serious about the social dynamics and what courts are doing, we have to put some skin in the game and be willing to serve on the jury. So summons are already going out in some jurisdictions. Is that what you're saying? They are going out. And and we have some courts that are scheduled to, to operate as early as uh, next week. What is your message to people again when they get it? I think I know. but Do your job. Yeah, do your job. If this is something you really are concerned about, it's your opportunity to make it happen. And encourage uh, your, your, your neighbors to, and your family members to, to engage and engage constructively, not to complain after the fact, but to, to engage. Are you also encouraging or instructing courts to do COVID testing, not just for the potential drawers, but also for the staff? 
Are you mandating vaccinations? What can you all do and what you can't do? Because that's a big part our, of it, too. Our judges have been anxious and and in, in desirous of having the vaccine available to court personnel for some time. That has opened up as of this week. Uh, of course, many of our judges are already in that 65 and older population. Mm -hmm. And now with the 55 and older population, uh, many of our, our court personnel were in, in the process of getting vaccines. I'm getting mine tomorrow, uh, my first shot. But yes, we are encouraging everybody to get vaccines as quickly as possible. And they've been eager for that to happen. Justice Melton, for those individuals who have been sitting in jails this all this time, can they request then that they be vaccinated before you bring them in for a jury trial? That is probably above my pay grade, whether they can request that. What is uh, your view on that? You know, I don't know what the process is. It's a great question. I don't know what the process is for people within the correction system to get vaccines. Um, that's something that would be properly asked to the commissioner of corrections. Uh, I don't, I have no idea what their plans are for that. Do you have a concern then? Because we know that the COVID numbers inside correctional facilities keeps increasing. Yes. And, and we do have that concern and we've made sure that, um, you know, our attorneys who really are happy in contact interaction with their clients uh, have access to the vaccine. And I know they're concerned. Uh, they'll have the barriers in place. They'll have the mask. They'll do the distancing. Mm -hmm. So all the other precautions that were, were in place um, don't become meaningless just because we have vaccines now available. Mm -hmm. The vaccines would absolutely add another measure of security. And if that's available, we, we need to take advantage of it. What will go into you then? And I know that you are, as everyone knows, you are going to be leaving. But in the time that you still are chief justice, will you be looking at then a an executive order that says still now let's open everybody up? Could a could a court say we're not ready yet? We're just not there. So there there are some uh, deadlines that I have suspended in our orders. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have signaled to the judges that we are on the cusp of lifting some of those deadlines. Uh, some of the deadlines that we're, we've talked about are, relate to grand juries. There's some jurisdictions who have not yet begun holding grand juries. We've signaled that in the next couple of months that that suspension on those statutory deadlines might lift. And so you might need to get moving on that. Mm -hmm. So, yes, that's very much in the works. And also, Chief Justice Milton, before we say goodbye with this conversation, I do want to get your thoughts on because we keep hearing that this is just going to happen with the what they some call or label mass evictions. Uh, just your take on all of that and in, in the pro and I know each not only each state is going to be different, each county is going to be different. But how do you view the best way for the courts to handle this? Well, what, I'll tell you what is happening uh, with a prior to the stimulus money that just became available, there was already money that uh, came out that's available now to the courts and the Georgia Department of Community Affairs in conjunction with our Council of Magistrate Courts, which handles the majority of evictions in the state, have been very proactive in working towards the development of what basically are eviction courts where they use the money that's available to match match with tenants who are on the brink of being evicted. And that money actually goes to paying rent. And so it's a win for the tenant. It's a win for the landlords because they actually get money in pocket for their, for their property. They don't have to go without for a continued period of time. And that's been working. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been, it, it's been multiplying throughout the state. And uh, as long as that money is available, that is a solution that, that provides a win for both sides. And then finally, Chief Justice Milton, the tragic killings last week here in Atlanta and out in Cherokee County. Just your overall thoughts on all of that, what took place? Well, it's, it's hard to put any of, any of that in perspective. It's really hard. Um, 
it's a reminder of just how bad we as people can be towards other people. Uh, that's not novel to this time. It's just a, a, another reflection of that. Uh, it's a reminder of the race issues that continue to exist. It's, it's a reminder of mental health issues that we have to get better at dealing with. Um, it's a reminder that we have a lot of work to do as a society to make sure everybody is safe and respected. Um, it's a reminder of some of the, 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 the bad practices that are going on on a daily basis throughout the, the city and the state and the country where women are subjected or, or, or living that lifestyle of making their bodies available for, for, for these types of activities. It's well, how just, do you know that? How do you know that that was the case? You don't know that, Chief Justice I, I don't know that. I don't know that. Okay. I'm just going by reports that I've heard. But to the extent that that was being done, uh, I, I've heard people respond to that those incidents as a call to uh, de-objectify women. What? Uh, and well, one, yeah, well, one could argue that that should always be the case. We should never objectify women. Again, uh, reminder. Not, yeah. not the new call, but a reminder, right? Through your lens, does this look like a hate crime? That's tough. That's tough. And I, and I can't answer that because uh, that, that will be something that I will have to be mm-hmm. prepared to address as a judge on this court. All right. Are you ready to tell me what you're going to do then when you step down? You didn't tell me last if time. I knew I would tell you, I think. But I honestly do not know. I do. I'm, right. I'm talking to people, and uh, who are you talking to? Uh, that I can't say. <laughs> that I can't say. But Ge- I am talking to people, and I do not know. All right, Georgia Chief Justice Harold Melton, also spearheading the campaign to, for y'all folks, when you get your jury summons, don't throw it away. Right? Is that what you're saying? That's right. All right. That's right. It's time to go to work. Thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. Stay safe. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online always at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Everybody else has one, so we do too. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.